Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail... Now, immigration officials say they've discovered an asylum fraud in which more than 150 people claimed to be in danger from loan sharks. This is, as far as I know, the largest of its kind that we've had in New Zealand. They had the same legal representative and some lived at the same address in New Zealand. They were using almost identical explanations in some cases of what they said had happened to them back in the, um, Malaysia or Indonesia. An interpreter is facing immigration charges and all but two of the asylum claims have been withdrawn or dismissed. These were potentially really vulnerable people who came here believing that they would be able to work and pay back a debt even possibly. We look at how the scam was discovered and the treatment of asylum seekers. Tonight, 153 Sri Lankan asylum seekers, including 37 children, are being detained in an Australian customs ship somewhere on the high seas. The journey of refugees and migrants, the illegal way, is really, really difficult. You know, many people get hurt. Some get stuck along the way. It's a horrible journey. There is hardly any help once they are cut off from any aid due to their asylum status and there is a lack of integration programs to help them adjust to a new society. We hear the horror stories from around the world, but just how much do we know about asylum seekers here? For many people, the refugee status determination process is a deeply traumatising experience. More on that soon. But first, RNZ's immigration reporter Jill Bonnet talks about how she came across New Zealand's biggest case of asylum visa fraud in more than a decade. It came up in appeals to the Immigration and Protection Tribunal, so there were a lot of these cropping up. So I had a look at them to see if they were similar facts and realised that MB or like Immigration New Zealand had already joined the dots and noticed that there were similarities between them and had um, made submissions to the tribunal to say that they believed that there was this cohort that were actually trying to exploit the refugee system. Tell me about those reports that you go through, that, which is sort of like your bread and butter, isn't it? It is. They, there's a few that come out every once in a while. They're deportations or they're refugee cases and also residence appeals. So they uh, are sometimes people who've been convicted here and are going to be deported. Otherwise, they're refugee cases where somebody's been turned down by the refugee status unit and then they have the opportunity to appeal to the Immigration and Protection Tribunal. When you spotted something there, was it a single case or was it this 150 cases? No, it was a single case. I noticed previously that there had been a few mentioning money lenders but I hadn't looked into them and then noticed this one and the fact that already officials had been looking into it, the fact that some of these people were living even at the same address and that they were using almost identical explanations in some cases of what they said had happened to them back in the um, Malaysia or Indonesia the other things that they were noticing were just evidence that didn't stack up 
and mm. one woman didn't know the name of her husband and when she did remember she gave it a name that was different to her son who was also giving evidence in her case to try and bolster her refugee claim. So there were all sorts of different little um, discrepancies, inconsistencies that the tribunal said together with the fact that they didn't believe that the individual cases were credible. They also had this evidence that it was part of a, of a larger, maybe a scheme, I suppose. So what, what did these people, what did they say would happen to them if they were sent back to their own countries? And we're talking about people from Indonesia and Malaysia. There were differences in their accounts, but the common strand was that they had borrowed money back in their home country. It was on the basis that somebody said that they would invest in their company and they borrowed some money towards expanding their business or into a pyramid scheme. They'd not been able to pay it back. Um, They'd come to New Zealand. They were obviously hoping to work to pay that debt back, but they weren't able to. And if they went back, something very bad would happen to them. And in some cases, they were already telling uh, stories about what had happened to them um, at the hands of these gangsters, that they'd had their businesses burned down and that they had reason to feel threatened and to feel that worse was to come. How did they get into New Zealand in the first place? Did they come as visitors as tourists. Yeah, so they they come on temporary visas. Do you know whether they knew about the scam before they got here? No, I don't. I think that will be the really interesting part, actually, and to know if there was, it was a really organised scheme and if there was somebody making money out of it, if there's a man at the top or a woman at the top creaming something, whether they, they have actually got some sort of organised criminal group that has been trying to recruit people and having them pay to do this, saying you can come here, you can earn good money, you can either get refugee status or while you're waiting to get your refugee status, you can make some money working. So, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to find out quite the degree of organisation here and see if they were even coached to become refugees, you know, to be told what their version of events should be and and things like that. Okay, so that's not clear. We don't know enough about these people to know whether they themselves have been tricked into some kind of situation. That's right, yeah. I mean, sometimes people that seem complicit can actually be the victims. It's really not clear yet. I mean, you, you've been covering immigration stories for a long time, Jill. Have you ever come across anything like this? No, nothing as widespread as this. This is, as far as I know, the largest of its kind that we've had in New Zealand. There have been cases in the past where people had lied, got refugee status, been granted citizenship and it was subsequently found out that they um, had lied in their original claim and then there was a question of whether they should be stripped of their citizenship and interestingly um, the internal affairs minister of the time decided that they shouldn't be. Today morning reports can reveal that more than two dozen refugees granted New Zealand citizenship have been allowed to remain New Zealanders even though their claim to be refugees turned out to be bogus. Just to point out that most people who seek asylum 
they may be um, rejected, but it's not because they've necessarily lied. It can just be that they don't face um, a real chance of, of serious harm. For example, there was a human rights lawyer the week before last who was rejected. She said she was in danger if she returned to Russia. New Zealand has refused to grant asylum to a Russian human rights lawyer who fears for her life if she returns home after speaking out about election fraud. And although the tribunal believed her, it was just a question of whether she would actually come to harm if she was returned. The Refugee Appeals Tribunal has accepted the woman and her two children are genuinely scared about returning to Russia, but ruled the risk of the family being seriously harmed is remote. So I think just because asylum seekers, there's become quite a pejorative sense to that phrase. People are allowed to seek asylum and there are many people who come here who manage to make their own way here rather than go through the quota and they do have genuine reasons why they can't return to their home countries. You have been brought to this place here because you have sought to illegally enter Australia by boat. We often look across the ditch and give Australia a hard time for its treatment of asylum seekers. This is Scott Morrison in 2014 telling them to go home. If you have a valid claim, you will not be resettled in Australia. You will never live in Australia. If you are found not to be a refugee, you will remain in this camp until you decide to go home. New Zealand is far from perfect when it comes to asylum seekers. Just last month, an independent review described Immigration New Zealand's detention of asylum seekers in jail as... Inhumane and wrong at every level. Between 2015 and 2020, about 100 asylum seekers were locked up, out of 2,500 who made claims. This has actually revealed a culture of prejudice against asylum seekers at Immigration New Zealand, and that is heartbreaking and it has to change now. The government says New Zealand can do better and is promising to end the practice. People who support asylum seekers say that's not the only problem. Of the roughly 400 people who make it to New Zealand every year and claim refugee status, less than half are accepted. And when they are accepted, they are treated differently to other refugees who arrive through the quota system. Our position is simple, that really a refugee is a refugee and we should treat them all the same. There's nothing in the 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees that says that we should treat these people differently or, or indeed even says we should have convention and quota refugees. These are actually invented categories by, by, by New Zealand. Auckland University Professor Jay Marlowe is co-director for the Centre for Asia-Pacific Refugee Studies. He's co-written a report called Safe Start, Fair Futures, calling for all refugees to be treated equally and fairly. At the moment, the government actually distinguishes between quota refugees, people who are determined as refugees offshore that are part of our annual quota program, which is now up to 1,500 people. Those people have access to different supports and entitlements than people who are considered convention refugees. So the convention refugees are people who apply for asylum within New Zealand. The problem is, is that they don't have access to, to nearly the same supports or entitlements as, as quota refugees. 
So can you explain to me what does happen from the time someone who is has arrived in the country seeking asylum? I mean, how do, how do they get here in the first place? Because yep. they can't come, come by boat because we're too far away. Right. So, I mean, I think it's really important to acknowledge that actually there really isn't a history of people coming by boat, at least under their own steam. I mean, yes, there was the uh, Tampa refugees that Australia refused to accept that New Zealand did that came by boat. New Zealand doesn't really have that history. Because of that, I mean, New Zealand's got very, you know, with, with, with its external border controls and the ways in which people fly in, they're, all, they're already vetted. It's actually very difficult to get into this country to even apply for asylum in the first place. So one of the reasons to, to be able to apply for asylum, you actually have to be in that country. So until you actually step onto New Zealand soil, you can't apply as an asylum seeker. Um, so the way that people do that in New Zealand is oftentimes they might say they might be international students and maybe as they maybe when they finish their program or maybe even some at some point during their study, they may say that they have a well-founded fear of persecution. Um, and so on that basis, they then uh, apply to a refugee protection officer. It then uh, triggers a process where an application is put together where the refugee status unit hears that person's case uh, and looks for the evidence that, that that person has that well-founded fear of persecution. If they meet that threshold, they're recognized as, as refugees, and they thereby become convention refugees under New Zealand's system. They become residents and can potentially stay um, indefinitely. If that case is refused by the refugee status unit, and somewhere around 50% of those cases are not, are not approved, that person can then appeal to the Immigration Protection Tribunal, it's then heard again. If that's then rejected, then the last port of appeal would be to the minister. And there could be ministerial discretion that would allow people to stay. And how long does this process take? It, it can vary quite a lot, but sometimes this can take years. How do people actually prove that if they return to their home countries, that they will be persecuted or, the, or their lives will be in danger. How- so to be a refugee, there's kind of three main criteria. First is about that well-founded fear of persecution. The second is that you have to step outside your country of habitual residence. So uh, someone in Syria that's fleeing the civil war or even say someone in Ukraine, that they have to cross that, that Ukrainian border. They have to cross that Syrian border, say into Turkey or maybe in Ukraine, say to Poland, for instance, and then owing to that well-founded fear, they're, un- they're unable to return. So, so generally in New Zealand, what they're looking for is evidence of that well-founded fear. So that might be a, uh, evidence of existing conflict. They might be from a certain persecuted religious minority. They may have been part of certain human rights activities. And so th- the, it's, it's, in- it's incumbent on the applicant to actually sort of present that case to the decision maker for them to then decide whether or not they've met that threshold for a well-founded fear. And basically, it's, it's founded on the basis of, of the French term of non-refoulement, which means basically you can't send someone back to their country of origin. What these decision makers are looking at is, has that person met that threshold for a well-founded fear of persecution? And there are groups within the refugee status unit that actually kind of do, do research into what's happening in particular countries, looking to see what's happening to certain ethnic minorities, religious minorities, religious groups. And within that, they would be able to say, well, yes, we can see evidence that, yes, actually people are being persecuted for these reasons. Um, And then also the applicant can also be interviewed.
Even though it's a rigorous process, those who get through call themselves the lucky ones. Here's RNZ's Karimbri Raghu Kumar, who tells a lot of stories about asylum seekers and refugees for her programme Voices. So, for example, Jose, who came to Auckland on a temporary visa and then went to Wellington, within a few weeks of him arriving here on a temporary visa, he applied for asylum on the grounds of if he had to go back to Colombia, his life was in direct threat. He had been issued threats. He was a social worker, and social workers in Colombia face a, quite, a, quite a fair amount of danger for being gunned down, literally, by cartel members who want to recruit the youth that they're working with. Mm-hmm. So they see them as an impediment in their recruiting. So they try and get rid of social workers. So Jose himself came here in 2020, January, and decided to apply for asylum as soon as he arrived. And he had to wait for a period of a year, which was the beginning of 2021, until his his process was sort of underway of being accepted as a refugee, being given formal refugee status. So when I met him, Sometime in June, he had just received his refugee status and obviously he was extremely relieved and fairly lucky, I'd say, because it can be a bit of a, a bit of a gamble in that sense. From the minute you leave your country as an asylum seeker, everything's just up in the air in terms of luck. So he was one of the luckier ones who got in despite having waited, waited for a year for mm-hmm. that refugee status. In that period of time that he was waiting, though, what could he actually do here? Can he still work, that kind of thing? On a temporary visa? Well, you can't work legally, can you? No. No, you can't. It's not. It's obviously illegal, so his life was just in limbo. I think he had a family member here that was helping him get by on a day-to-day basis, but obviously he wasn't gainfully employed. So, no, I think I think with people like him, typically what will happen is that entire waiting period is just spent in absolute limbo you know you can't move forward you can't move backward you're simply just waiting to see if at all you're going to be accepted as a refugee into this country you've come seeking asylum into yeah so it's a long period of uncertainty so what what did he do when he got there so he had a family member here yeah so he knew that he had some kind of support when he arrived but that Actually applying uh, for refugee status, what does that even involve? I mean, do you just fill out forms? I mean, you know, I'm just thinking as a, as a new arrival here, how do you even go through that process? Well, if you claim asylum, you, had to, you obviously have to prove that you've got solid grounds of if you went back, your life would be in danger. Often that process itself is... is a, really, really hard mountain to climb because you would leave pretty much with no belongings if your life was in danger. Often they may not have the kind of records that are required to meet that proving proving process, the standards and the needs. So often that is one of the biggest problems. What also happens is the lack of support and tools to, to help these people through that mechanism, through that process because refugees who arrive here, who are processed offshore, come here with a setup that they can access help from, whereas asylum seekers don't have that. So they come with pretty much nothing and they don't have any any sort of support mechanism here aside from a few community organizations that are funded minimally mm. to help them through this process. So apart from that, applying and proving that your life is indeed in danger if you went back, they've basically got to try and pull all sorts of strings and try and work with the system without actually knowing how it works. 
So there isn't that much support out there for asylum seekers because they are treated extremely differently to refugees who arrive here. Yeah, I mean, even the word asylum seeker, seeker has quite a stigma, I think, still, doesn't it? Of course, yeah, because people don't necessarily see that they, they have legitimate reasons to leave their country. Often they'll be mislabeled as queue jumpers, uh, people that want to take advantage of systems or exploit um, immigration systems. Um, these are people that are that are escaping pretty dire situations back in their home countries. You know, they leave just out of out of sheer despair. These aren't people that leave for for a joyride on a boat or just to get on a plane because they've never been on one. These mm. are people that are seeking refuge. They're seeking asylum because they are often left with no other choice. I, I think the stigma needs to be sort of dismantled, and one way of doing it is to actually give them more support and provide more mechanisms, provide more community organizations with funding to give them the support that they need while they're seeking asylum and why they're making claims claims to asylum. Yeah, people who come here as refugees, they are immediately taken in and, uh, as you say, sort of, there are wraparound services for them. So even the asylum seekers who are successful, do they not get that wraparound service? Once they are successful, mm-hmm. yes, they they have access to refugee services, but it's during that process that they need a lot of help from mental health to actual understanding of the system to, you know, understanding of languages, um, access to healthcare, all sorts of things. So it's during that process that they're often left out at sea, literally. You've put out a report this year about the treatment of asylum seekers. What has to happen? I mean, what's, what kind of recommendations did you make in this report? We, we actually kind of keep it quite simple, really. It's that for asylum seekers, that we need to ensure that they um, have a safe start, which means that we provide targeted policies that are accept- and, and accessible services to ensure people are protected from extreme poverty or exploitation during the refugee status determinations process. The second recommendation that we really have is that, is, that, is that things are fair, that really a refugee is a refugee, and we should largely treat them um, the same to ensure strong community integration. That not only benefits people from refugee backgrounds, but it benefits all of society. Has this report gone to the government? Yeah, so the report's gone to the government, and I think that it's been received uh, in, in good heart. We were invited to present the report at Parliament. So, so I think that there's, there, that there's certainly goodwill, but we need to translate that goodwill into action. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson. Our associate producer is Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Jill Bonnet, Karimbri Ragukumar and Jay Marlowe. Kakite anō.